Good morning. How are y'all doing? Uh, my wife, Shirley, will you stand up just so they can see what a fortunate man I am? It's said that behind every great man there is a woman, and I get to say I have the privilege of walking side by side with a great woman. God is good. Amen? So it is a blessing, and I mean that in the genuine sense, it is a blessing to just be here. If we would have ended after communion and singing and just said, good enough, I would have said, hallelujah, amen. So I hope what little I add will be an encouragement, and that I hope that it will resonate in some meaningful way for each of you. You have been a reverse blessing to us. I've had the privilege of going places and talking to pastors that are caring about universities and say, well, let me tell you a story about what's happening in the Dallas Metro Network. And uh, this is not an exaggeration. The closer we get to May, the more often Shirley and I will be asked, when are the Texans coming? When are the Texans coming? Okay? <laughs> We have people saying, well, we would love to open our home again. Can you promise they'll be Texans? Okay. So you have won the hearts and the mind, and our sister, we're sister churches with you. And so, as Paul so often would do, and he would greet people at the end of his letters, I bring you greetings from all of the staff of UCM and CCF and from the church called Hillcrest Church of Bellingham. We are kindred in the spirit. Amen? Amen? One other thought I had from our time of singing, there's that song that uses the word roar in it, right? You remember that one? I think it's about the heavens roaring for the Lion of Judah. And I too got to sit down in front and could hear you roar. Your affection, your generous love, your gratitude to Jesus. So, from the Lord, well done, well done. Well, I'm a, I was trained to be a lit major, so I learned to put myself into stories, and I can remember one time that, you know, I'd been told by one of my professors or a friend or somebody, said, you really got to put yourself into the story, be there with it. And so, as I was reading the scripture, I'd oftentimes do that. And one time I was reading along in the book of Acts, and I hit the story about the martyrdom of Stephen. And so I tried to put myself there amongst that crowd, amongst those executioners, amongst the complacency and uh, complacency of, uh, of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus. And, and then I went on reading, and where I want to share from today is the story from there forward a bit in the book of Acts. Because what it did to me was it made me ask the question in reflection, if I could be in any church in the New Testament, what community of Jesus people would I want to be a part of? And you can think about it for a second now. You know, would you want to be in, in Ephesus? Would you want to be in Thyatira? Would you want to avoid Laodicea? You know, where would you want to be? Would you want to be in the center of it all and be in Rome? And as I thought about that and prayed about that and was journaling about that, 
I said, Lord, if I could pick any church of the ancient world, I'd pick Antioch. And so I want to talk to you about why I hope all of us will desire to become deeper, richer, broader Antiochans. It is a wonderful church that I think resonates with what you all are doing and what God has called us to do. And so reading from the book of Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 9, the story. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. That is the message of Jesus and the good news. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with those men, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, who we know more often by his uh, Greek name, Paul, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christ ones first at Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. May God bless the reading and reflection of his word. Amen? So why Antioch? Well, I was asked by somebody yesterday if I'd have a three-point sermon. I said, no, there's four, but I rewrote it, and it's three now. I thought we should be as Trinitarian as we could be. I want to suggest three good reasons why we should desire that God do the kind of growing, expanding, deepening work that he did in this story and make it part of our growing story, both here with you and us up in the northwest corner. The first thing that I really noted is I began to, I grew up on a little farm with cows, and so I learned the importance of chewing the cud, and it's always been helpful in the way I read and think about scripture, to just chew on it for a while and let it grow into me. And so the first thing that I noted here uh, when I was doing this uh, is that the witness community of Antioch, this Jesus missional community there, was birthed in times of great upheaval and inexplicable grace. Remember the text that says, where evil does abound, grace doth much more abound. You can tell I learned my first scriptures as a believer in the King James Version. That is to say, as evil grows in its intensity and power, there is a seen or unseen enlarging of the capacity and the possibility of grace. You know, hard, confusing, and intimidating times 
understandably can cause sensible people to pull up the bridges, the drawbridges, to batten down the hatches, hunker down into a protective isolation. But what strikes me here is that the Spirit of God was at work and produced a very different outcome from what we might humanly expect. The violence against Stephen and all of its injustice and ugliness nevertheless created a dispersion of the Lord's people from Jerusalem. And out of that dispersion, multiple numbers of men and women came to hear the good news. Wherever these people were fleeing, they also appeared to have the capacity to sing of the good hope that was in Christ Jesus. They sowed seeds of the gospel along their way. And what others meant for harm and to capture and suppress the Jesus movement, God took this evil thing and by his great power caused it to become a thing of life to the broader world. The Lord brought unexpected life out of, out of excuse me, Stephen's unjust death. This means God is greater than our circumstance, and he works mysteriously in the midst of all things. I am not a person that says, Lord, you know, make life hard so I can be better. But I am a person that wants to say, Lord, where are you now in the mess and what are you doing? I was led to the Lord in what were conceived to be and certainly still are hard, confusing, and spiritually troubling times. Conversations and articles were being written in Time and Newsweek and other places that the sun was setting on all of Western culture. This was the time of the latter part of the 60s and the early part of the 70s. In the middle 60s, Time magazine had an essay, and on the front cover was an all-black cover. Those of you who live there or have done research still have seen it. And in bright red, it says, God is dead. 1966, if I remember the date right. And it talked about the growing philosophical wave in the universities, secular universities of America, where this is becoming a kind of grabbing traction and this thought that God is no longer relevant if he ever was. It was a time of violence. It was a time of Vietnam and all the confusion and bitterness and hope and despair that went with that in individual people and in the whole culture. It was a time that there was a veil of kind of sorrow, confusion, and anxiety across the whole land with M.L. King and Robert Kennedy's murders. It didn't matter where you were at political. It was a thought, it, could this actually happen in the home of the brave and the land of the free? In our inner cities, the despair and the oppression and the racial outrage that came with the killing of M.L. King burst out into burnings of the inner cities. It seemed like America was on fire. The shadow of the violence, the angst of it, it was coast to coast. It was a time of political division, profound division, and eventually would lead to the resignation of a sitting president. Thousands upon thousands of college students were in the streets singing John and Yoko Ono's anthem, All We Are Saying Is Give Peace a Chance. 
While science labs in some of our major universities were blown up by these same peaceniks, it was a schizophrenic spirit. It was a time of a kind of social madness. It was a time when pro-choice abortion movement was birthed out into the open. Gay rights movement became part of the social conversation and fabric. And in the midst of all, there was this kind of strange, odd counterpoint to all this, the happy singing hippies, drug-promoting professors, male advocates of free love, Understandably, in light of that, female voices of women's liberation and the anarchists who opposed almost everything that seemed traditional, orderly, or sacred. There was a feeling that God was dead and churches hunkered down, turned in, pulled up the drawbridges and just prayed that God would help them to survive until the trumpet of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But like our story in Antioch, God was not dead, and while it may seem that he was silent, he was not failing to move. In the midst of all this craziness, angst, and darkness, I went to the university in 1969, God was on the move. And thousands upon thousands of university students in the next few years, men of university age, women of university age here in the United States, and then spreading first to Europe and then beyond, who would have thunk it that Europe would ever have revival amongst its college youth, but they did. There was this thing called the Jesus people. You know, I'd have you stand up if you were a part of that experience, but I won't out you for your age. <laughs> Other than, thank goodness, there are a few of you that are older still here amongst them. I never left the college, so I just feel like I'm a college student still, okay? <laughs> I was one of those happy Jesus freaks, as we were called by others, including people in the church that thought we were odd, that we were so excited and hopeful and quite excited about making a difference in the university. After I came to faith, I'd, been, I'd had a little bit of churchianity in my background, kind of enough, you know, that, that what they say, you get inoculated so you never get the real disease. That was kind of my church upbringing, just enough to make me pretty convinced that this is irrational and irrelevant. So after I met the Lord and he began to change my heart and change it he did, he birthed in me a sense of awe and wonder at the person and name of Jesus. He made me believe that in fact being called to follow him was the greatest grace that a human being could ever, ever be invited into. And at the same time, he changed my thought from the kind of gruesomeness of obedience to Christian do's and don'ts and instead filled my life with gratitude where the thought of doing the will of Jesus, no matter how hard it was to have the power of the Spirit to change my fallen personality, that to have that kind of opportunity to make him known, to make his purposes known, to live differently so that other people could hear him, to give generously that other people could simply hear good news, was not a burden it was like I lucked out. 
And that's what gratitude and praise is meant to re-ignite in us on Sunday mornings or whenever else. In the hearing of the scripture, you know, I'm reading a book right now. It says, it's on preaching. It says, preaching, the, the, the work of remembrance. We need to remember because we live in rather difficult times. If you actually read what's going on in the world, if you read the world of science, the world of political science or biological science, the, all the issues that are going around our world racially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it makes the 60s feel a bit safer. And so it's a very profound time. After I came to faith and I became an active part of a local church because there was a really cute girl in the Jesus people thing that had attended that church. So I thought, wow, she's there. It's got to be good. You know, <laughs> this way, we were not deep, mature theologians. Okay. Just, you know, we probably still aren't, you know, and so way. So here we are, all of us long haired, bib overall wearing students attending this church. It was quite proper and, but also enthusiastic. And it had really nice new pews. They just remodeled and stuff and the deacon board was very very concerned about whether we were clean enough and so we didn't uh, you know had opportunities I remember one time speaking with a uh, you know with one of the leaders of the church and he voiced rather bluntly to me he told me he didn't like my my beard and if I was going to sing in the rock choir I had to shave it off and so I said, okay. And, but then he went on, he said, you know, he says, it just simply never entered into my thought that the Lord would or even could, and perhaps, although he didn't say it, even should, save an anti-war, left-leaning, confused, semi-Marxist, capitalist, business owner, free love advocating hippie like me. Now, I, I took no offense at, his, at this because he was pondering how surprised he was by the works of God and how different God was than he would be and how fortunate we were not there to worship him but to worship God. And I was just as surprised, just as surprised at the unexpected grace of God in the midst of unexpectedly difficult so my prayer for you as we face a world that also could turn us inward might make us into isolationist and not make us see and conceive of the possibility of what God wants to do in our now present state my prayer for you is that your personal vision and your personal sacrifice that was spoken in the sacrifice of Tana getting up in front of people. Uh, I've already heard that she is the twin to my wife separated at some point. And uh, to get up. Thank you, Tana. Thank you. That we would be generous people of mind and heart and wallet. Martin Luther said, you're not fully converted until your mind believes, your heart can perceive, and your wallet is opened. I read that as a young believer and set me on a whole new course as a businessman to think about what that meant. So I pray for your vision, your sacrifice, your perseverance. 
your impact in creating missions to the campus and missions to and beyond the campus. The strategic commitment that God has created in birth and vision in Ronnie and others and has been carried out now generationally. You live in the midst of it. You may not actually understand how incredibly unique and fabulously powerful this is. You may feel so normal, but you are entering in and being allowed to be a part of something in Christ that is rather abnormal in our culture and in our world. I pray that you'll grow in it and that as we face a a growingly difficult transition in our culture from kind of nominal agreement to Christianity to rather rather strong and vicious opposition to it in many places, that you will indeed find the power of the Holy Spirit to run your race well. One of the most profound books I've ever read, and I recommend it to you that you would read it and journal from it slowly, is a book entitled, and it's available in every library, The Story of the Tortoise and the Hare. (laughs) You don't need to get the Greek or the Hebrew version. The English version is quite exact in its translation. Remember the tortoise and the hare. It is not enough to start the race well. The intent of the race is to end it well. No one says it better than St. Paul to young Timothy in a transitional time of difficult and darkness as Paul was making inroads into the great Roman Empire. He says to him, my life is already being poured out like a drink offering of loving sacrifice. I've already run my race and now there's a laurel wreath waiting for me, a crown of affirmation, the good news of Jesus' good word, good, well done. And so I encourage you, especially those of you who are a bit older, along with myself and Ronnie, you know, to hear that, and there's a few of you 70-year-olds, whoa, I never thought I'd reach to the top of the heap, or is this the bottom? (laughs) I never can get it right, okay? The goal is to finish well. And for those of us who are older and live in a, oh, the ultimate end of life is to chase golf balls and what? No, no, you're not seniors, you are elders. And you are meant to take and step into that great need intentionally, not accidentally, intentionally. And so, I see you on the right course. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, I have no need to teach you about love. God himself by his spirit has already taught you. But this one thing I would say, grow in your love more and more. And that's what I would share with you. Grow in your vision more and more. Second thing about the Antiochians, so they were birthed in boldness. Now, I think it's pretty interesting that the story centers around a guy who is not called the sons of thunder or sons of boldness. He's called son of encouragement. 
And, you know, we usually don't actually kind of pull that word apart. The son who puts courage in others. It's not his real name, by the way. You can go find that out. It's kind of fun. Okay? And he says, we're told at Antioch that Barnabas is sent there. There's prophetic types. And Barnabas goes and finds Saul, who happens to be back at hometown Tarsus, and brings him to share in the work. Zealous, wild, past zealous, wild, prosecuting Saul has now been on mission, and Barnabas goes and finds him. First, he took him to the apostles way back in Acts chapter 9, which was such a bold, incredible, risky, crazy thing to do. But he did it because he knew the nature and the ways of God. And he's still at it years later. He has not lost his passion to do God's bidding. Would we risk, and how much would we risk, to forward God's bidding? This is a question I ask myself as I age. Ah, you get more careful. But Barnabas is unorthodox, not in his theology, but in his practice. Who would make this kind of risk? Barnabas would. You know, it makes me think about boldness stories. The scripture's full of them, isn't it? Just unlikely people who do crazy things. David with a Goliath. Daniel with his prayer life with the shutters open. Don't you know you don't ask for trouble, Daniel? But he wasn't asking for trouble. He was asking for conformity to the spirit of his king. And it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. I think about boldness stories in our college ministry. It's called Campus Christian Fellowship, or CCF, okay? So if I you know, throw that out, you'll know what it is. We were bored. Excuse me, we were bored. No, we were birthed. We were birthed in a time that the whole culture seemed bored in the university. And the Christian student was silent. I'm sure there were Christians at Western Washington University when I came as a non-believing in the stream of hippiedom thing. You couldn't find them. You didn't hear them. But they were probably there. But I think they were hunkered down with a feeling, can we even survive? But there was amongst them a Barnabas-like fellow named Glenn Suggs. And by some really unusual circumstances, I call it miraculous, somebody else might call it circumstances, Glenn ended up my roommate. Glenn was uh, starting to do his master's, and he wanted to work in the juvenile um, system, the juvenile detention system, kids at risk kind of thing. He was doing his master's, and I was in my second year of school. And he ended up living with me. And God used him. God brought him into my life and then used him to help me discover the person of Jesus that I'd never heard about in those periodic moments in church and I discovered was much more radical than any of the radicals that I knew. And not only radical, he could not only Talk about the vision that was so radical. He could promise the presence and power to help transform us in the work. 
And so this skinny kind of guy, you know, not very hip, you know, certainly not, you know, they wearing the right clothing and stuff. He was used mightily because he would live in the midst of my radical secularized life and my friends. So Friday night, it was party hardy at 1510 High Street. Mondays, it was pray. So we were a party and praying house. I partied, he prayed. (laughs) Guess who won? But here's something else he did. He not only prayed, he not only introduced me to his community, his friendship circle, he not only lived with me, but he also was there to answer questions I had. He was an amazing young student, himself a young believer, and he also did things that were incomprehensible to me. Now, I owned a janitor business, so I knew all about cleaning up. But after our Friday night parties, and we won't go into details about what all ended up on the floor in the bathroom, et cetera, et cetera, when I'd get up finally on Saturday mornings, the house would be cleaned. And I'll never forget the spring morning I got up after one of our biggest parties, and I walked into the, into the living room, it was spitless, just spitting clean, and out on the porch in his rocking chair, having his morning He called them, weird word, devotional. It was like he was devoted to something. (laughs) Was Glenn. When I walked out the door, he turned to look to me, and he said quite gently, are you okay? Be wary of the powers of the culture to turn us into the harsh, angry, in word, caustic, ridiculing people. We are to have the sweet savor of Christ in our words and our deeds. Our allegiances are not first and foremost to anything other than the king we sang about today. So Lord, help us to be odd. Isn't that what Paul said? We are a peculiar people. I think that means weird or maybe freakish. And so you could become Jesus freaks. Okay, maybe not. The community of CCF was birthed because Glenn had interactions with Hare Krishna people. And the Hare Krishna said they were chanting off the Western narrow-minded religions. And so Glenn came home and said, we got to pray the, the, the Hare Krishna off campus. But we weren't gathering for prayer outside of our homes. And it started a prayer meeting that led to prophetic words and visions that moved us onto campus, created a name called Campus Christian Fellowship. And now for over almost 50 years, Campus Christian Fellowship simply has been a constant light of memory that Jesus Christ is living and Lord. Time Magazine, 66, God is dead. 72 or 3-ish, stained glass picture window of Jesus. 
the Jesus people are here. Uh, they didn't apologize for getting it wrong, by the way, in 66. <laughs> but that's Time Magazine, right? Okay. And so there was this boldness. Uh, students, uh, before CCF even was formed, we have a main square. It's called Red Square because it has red bricks. And in the middle of it is Fisher Fountain. And actually, Dr. Fisher, the president of the university, was accused of being a, a communist. And so it's really ironically humorous that it's called Red Square, you know? <laughs> So uh, Red Square is kind of the fulcrum of our university. It's the, the marketplace, the transitional crossing place. What in, the old, what in the New Testament, it says that Paul went to the, to the, the agora, the marketplace. That's where he'd start building relationships and stuff. And so some students one morning started singing in Red Square. Just a few of them. There was a tambourine, a trumpet, a guitar and a saxophonist. And they were just jamming Jesus music. And ever since that day, in 1972, to this day, students, be it a handful or significant numbers, sing in Red Square. They start the whole university's morning off, he's here and he loves you. And we love him. That's bold. That's bold. Right. Uh, when I um, graduated, I was gonna, uh, my intention was to be a teacher, secondary education, English, speech, and theater. I loved it. I saw people come to Christ during student teaching. We started the Jesus Club on campus. Uh, we did a, a poetry book, and all the Jesus students wrote thought, very thoughtful poems and stuff. And so, you know, I was not running from that job. I was running to it. I was excited about being a Jesus person missionary to the secondary high school education community. But the Lord intercepted me through a long story, which I won't tell, all that, and really opened my heart to the consideration of going back. But I was thoroughly confused. You know, I wasn't raised with much church. I didn't actually know there was this thing called seminary. You know, I didn't know about Bible colleges. I didn't know that pastors actually even got educated. <laughs> I didn't. I don't, that's not a put down. I just didn't know that. And so I was invited by another guy and, and his wife, uh, who were part of the opening group along with myself and about a, a half a dozen or so other folks that started CCF. He says, you got to come and see this church. It felt, it felt like Andrew saying, or uh, Peter saying to Andrew, come, you got to see what we've found. And so I said, okay, I'll show up. So I show up on a Friday night, and during that previous week, the Lord had been just kind of roiling in me. And if the conclusion I had midweek was, do you want me to go back? To CCF and not go here? Lord, I have no idea how to do that. Open the door, give me the courage, I'll walk through it. So I go to this little church called Hillcrest Chapel. Sunday night, then there's probably 20 people there. I was going to the great big church at that time, so it looked like a small group, because it was. Afterwards, the pastor asked me out, Richard Ellison, says, hey, can I take you out for a burger? I thought, this church will grow. <laughs> you know, at least amongst college students. And so I said, sure, I had no idea. He says, hey, I've been up, I've seen some of the things you guys have been doing in the you know, CCF. And he says, this is 1974, he says, 
I went to my board and I asked him a question, and I want to bring it, it's going to come out of, left, out of the left field. The board's given me permission to ask you, would you consider going back to Western as our missionary? Oh, you know, like, be careful what you pray. Lord, open the door, I'll go through it. You know, my parents, it took them years to get over this change in direction. But it led to that direction. Richard Ellison had an eighth grade education when he went to work to help care for his family. He drove logging trucks out of the Mount Baker National Forest. One day, God spoke to him and said, park the truck, I've got work for you to do. He parked the truck and began to do the work of traveling evangelism. Here's this guy who'd never spent one day on a university campus or college, but had a profound visional burden for university students. And the reason he had it is because the Holy Spirit spoke to him like they did to the Antiochians and said, this is in your backyard. I want you to reach it. And so I ended up at this little church. I ended up receiving one-third of all the offerings that were taken. We met three times a week. And it began this journey. 47 years later, I'm still in the same community. I'm still on the same journey. And I feel like the luckiest man in the world. Richard Ellison told me, Brady, the reason we want you to go isn't so that students will come here, although we will certainly adjust and make it so it would be a place of welcoming benefit. He says, we want to send somebody because we don't know how to go, and we refuse to sit in this city and not reach that campus. Powerful. That's bold. And so bold, it was a bold time. Finally, oh, I should tell you one other quick bold story and then we'll go. There was a, for those of you who feel like you're with me in the older set, there was a gal that we met and her name was Jessie Pearl Hadley. Uh, she, was, she was pushing close to 90 and she was going to the same big church that I was going to. And Jessie Pearl Hadley, she was the kind of woman who said, and this was true, she said, uh, we talk and say, hey, can we take you out to lunch, Jessie? After, you know, or mom, we call her mom Hadley. After church, she says, oh no, I've got to go to the, uh, I've got to go to the senior citizen's home and reach out to those old folks. And I'm going, mom, you are 90 years old. <laughs> I think she was probably the first one to say, it's only how old you feel, not how old you are, right? She just had this expansive vision as an elderly citizen of the kingdom and so we built a relationship with her and so we brought her one night to friday night and we met in a smaller kind of lecture hall auditorium and every chair was bright orange and bright yellow who thought it up i don't know it was the 60s and 70s okay and so she comes in and we walk her down we brought some other people that she knew we rolled them in other wheelchair stuff they sat right in the front before mom hadley sat down uh, well, we started, and we had the first song. Before she sat down, I stand right next to her, and she turned over to me. She says, I've seen this before. And I said, what? She says, this. And she turns around and looks at 300, high, uh, 300 college students singing and celebrating Christ on a Friday night. 
And I said, when did you ever go to a college ministry meeting? So, oh, never. This is my first one. <laughs> How did you see this? She says, I've been praying for 10 years that God would light a spark of revival and renewal at Western. So I was so concerned for those young college people. They have so many challenges and so many struggles. You know, she's just this compassionate little lady. And she says, and one day the Lord, as encouragement, showed me this room, although I didn't know it was this room. And he says, it shall be filled. (coughs) Wouldn't it be wonderful to live to the end of our lives with vision and prayerfulness and anticipation that in the darkest of times, God is at work. Final thought about the Antiochans. They were an other-oriented place. They were surprised to be invited into the Jewish Messiah thing. They were Gentiles. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Jews and them. The Antiochian church became a doorway to the Gentile world. It would send Paul and Barnabas, their beloved prophet teachers, it would send them out when the Spirit called them out. Every one of us owes the responsiveness of Antioch a great thank you in the Lord. Unless you're Jewish. But if you're a Gentile, it was Antioch and the vision of Paul and Barnabas and others that said yes, that God's work is for all people in all places at all times. I wish that chap that was just so surprised that God could save a college student would have had that kind of understanding. He would have been happier in life. You are a doorway. You're also a gathering in a community. But you, your purpose in being communities is to be a witness doorway to a broader world. And so thank you for reaching campuses. Thank you for making them with the singers in Red Square thought was implicitly important about them singing. They thought that it was very important that other students and professors would hear that the university would not be silent about Christ, that it would be known that there were Jesus people who loved and adored him and were full of gratitude. And so churches, because that's what you are, churches, the work's not done, but well done. And I pray again that God will give you such an outward heart. He's an other-oriented God. That he'd give you such generosity. We've already heard that sermon. And that he would give you joy. Now, I'm not talking about some flippy floppy joy that you're supposed to be happy and put the Jesus smiley face on when you just got watched your friend Stephen stoned. We're spiritual realists. 
but we really are a part of the one thing that will transformatively bless the world and will live beyond death. And so, press on. Don't be the rabbit. And be bold. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, uh, oh, Abba, Father, how grateful we are to have you. And dear Jesus, how wonderful that we can call our Lord our friend. And Holy Spirit, who we so often maybe aren't quite well aware of, thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for making Scripture come alive to us. Thank you for giving us so many ways and means to simply bring light and blessing into those around us. So, Lord, we do. We just pray you'll, you'll pour out the same spirit of encouragement that you poured out on Barnabas. You'll pour out the same courage of going to the Greeks that you did on those men that begin to break out to a broader vision. We pray you'll pour out in us the celebratory thankfulness as we see many come to know you, grow in you, and be sent into the world by you. Thanks for letting us be about the thing that matters most and help us, Lord, to roar in our spirits at the thought of there not being a campus in which there isn't an awareness of your name and an opportunity for people to come taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.